Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Michael Walden. You're listening to Ask the Blood Detective. Today's topic I call crushing viral infections. And I'd like to start off uh, by saying that this is not your typical health show on taking the characteristic and cliche antiviral herbs, let's say, and uh, suddenly uh, warding off all manner of viral infections. However, I will be discussing specific strategies today, which do include anti-viral strategies uh, in the herbal area, but within a larger context of general health and well-being. What I have seen in my 28 years of practice is that individuals may take reasonably good care of themselves, and when they get a viral infection, they pop a couple of uh, pills, and uh, they make it better. Sometimes they get better because the nutrition that they took worked. And uh, quite a lot of the time, uh, it's my belief that they simply get better because uh, the virus was at the end of its life cycle or the person believes in the treatment so much that that in and of itself, uh, in and of itself boosts their immune system. I don't think I'll spend time today discussing the philosophical ways in which a person can get you know, well, and whether or not effects of natural medicine or nutrition seem to be of placebo or not. But needless to say, uh, placebo these days is now considered a, a true healing effect when a person motivates their body for any belief system that they have, either conscious or unconscious, that allows their physiology to change in a favorable way. But I want to speak about how to put together a truly healthy body that has great resiliency against viruses. And if you're listening to the show for the first time, again, my name is Dr. Michael Walton. I practice in uh, Katona, New York, which is located an hour north of New York City. To reach me for questions and show ideas, you can call me at 914-552-1442. You can email me at info at blooddetective.com. And I would suggest that everyone out there listening to the show get uh, a pen or uh, a pencil ready with a piece of paper so that you can write down much of what I'm saying. Because to do a very good job on immunity and overall health for antiviral purposes, it's going to take more than popping a couple of pills. So the recent international outbreaks of viral infections have made one thing very clear. We need a new antiviral strategy in our modern times to combat ongoing scourges of viral infections, pandemic spread of these infections, like those that happened in 2014. They're clearly proof that the, the usual medical and public health measures of sanitation, uh, medication, vaccination, they are simply inefficient. They do not work much of the time. The ideal antiviral strategy would both generally and specifically be effective, be widely available, uh, be affordable, uh, with few or negligible uh, side effects, and 
drugless, or at least having favorable drug-nutrition interactions. So for most of medical and public health history, I believe the tools used against viral infections have been vaccination and sanitation. And with the more recent advent of, you know, these super drugs that are molecularly targeted antiviral drugs for specific viruses, for example, a, a drug specific for hepatitis C. So the purpose of this show today is not to discuss or debate sanitation or vaccination or medication, but rather I want to point out several other natural interventions and strategies that could be used additionally and to the to great both patient and public benefit. And by the way, the evidence-based interventions that I'm going to speak about, they're proven safe, generally safe, they're proven effective, and they are very low cost. So the difference though is, in terms of these strategies working for the long haul, you want to practice these health strategies on a daily basis, not just when you feel a virus is coming on or you have the early signs of it. Because by then, you might actually be successful in, in uh, reducing the life cycle of the virus, let's say, in your body, but that virus may have affected your brain cells, making you predisposed to Alzheimer's disease. That's an infection, just not the infection that you were thinking about when we started this show. If an Epstein-Barr virus, for example, affects the intestinal tract, there are various types of lymphoma and cancers of the gut and elsewhere in the body that can be caused by viral infections. So I'm not merely talking about obvious viral infections, although clearly with the, the time of the year that it is uh, right now, we have to be concerned about that. So we first, I believe, need to think about how do we support the cellular health of our bodies as a whole? You know, viral infections have numerous adverse effects on cellular and whole body health. You, we all know this from listening to shows like this and, and other shows uh, that I put on under uh, Ask the Blood Detective, like Everything Immune. So intracellular consequences of viral infections are important to know. For example, viruses affect and cause what's called mitochondrial dysfunction. And when mitochondrial dysfunction occurs, a person might have prolonged inflammation, prolonged fatigue, prolonged viral infections. And as I just mentioned, they could actually have Alzheimer's disease. So among the more than I would say 30 or so interventions to improve mitochondrial function, some of the more important ones nutritionally are coenzyme Q10 or ubiquinol. So CoQ10 is ubiquinol, which is ubiquitous, which means it's found in every cell and produced in the mitochondria. So if you have a viral infection, or any infection for that matter, that adversely affects the mitochondria and its function, there will be less cellular energy. And the way in which viruses affect the mitochondria can make you more or less, well actually just more, I should say, susceptible to all manner of diseases. Once again, Alzheimer's disease, but also Parkinson's disease, certainly multiple sclerosis, any number of autoimmune diseases. Viruses are often at the, at the root cause. And one of the things these viruses do is impact adversely the endoplasmic reticulum. So the average individual, dare I say, because there is no average individual, 
probably requires a minimum of 400 milligrams of a pharmaceutical grade coenzyme Q10, but also alpha lipoic acid. So alpha lipoic acid is an antiviral. It's a chelator. Uh, it upregulates liver function. But again, we're talking about viruses today and immune modulators. And lipoic acid helps upregulate the mitochondrial function, as does krill oil, which I'm a big fan of, and also krill oil taken with acetyl-L-carnitine. So with krill oil, you need naturally occurring essential fatty acids. And the krill oil dose should be at least starting at about 500 milligrams and then going up from there. And the reason why you always want to take krill oil is because krill oil helps form the membranes that make up and provide stability to the mitochondria. Now, the mitochondria, you might remember, folks, remember from eighth grade science class? I, I definitely do. I remember sitting in my eighth grade science class. I could even pick out the chair I was sitting into, looking at the board, and the mitochondria was on the board. I, I said to myself, I said, why are we learning this again? I know this. <laughs> so it's funny how memories affect us. But the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, right? And it's made of a fatty acid membrane. So viruses disrupt that fatty acid membrane. So we need krill oil to build it back up. We need coenzyme Q10. We need lipoic acid. And we need acetyl L-carnitine, not L-carnitine, but acetyl L-carnitine because that's the form of carnitine that brings fatty acids into uh, and from the outer side of the mitochondrial, uh, mitochondrial um, bi what they call bilipid membrane, it's cell membrane, inside where it's used. And we know that unless you are on a medication, uh, like a blood thinner, you shouldn't be adding krill oil. Uh, in fact, you shouldn't be adding any nutrients until you speak with a well-trained uh, nutritionist. Not all nutritionists know uh, what they should know about drug-nutrient interactions. They'll simply say, well, the nutrients can't hurt any drugs. That's just not true. And um, when I was through dietitian school, we learned maybe, I don't know, maybe there was a page of drug-nutrient interactions. As a certified nutritional specialist, which is another state uh, certification, uh, I learned zero about drug-nutrient interactions. When I took my master's in nutrition uh, at the University of Bridgeport, I actually sat in the in the brick and mortar building, we never mentioned uh, uh, drug nutrient interactions. And um, chiropractic school, we did. Uh, medical school, a few things. So it really took 28 years of practicing and paying attention to this and realizing the importance. So if you're on medications, don't just take this stuff. You need to make sure you're, you're taking it correctly. So, so look. Isn't it true, wouldn't you agree that the recent international health crisis due to viral infections has made one thing super, super clear? We need a new strategy to combat viral infections. Ebola has been in the international news uh, recently for the past several months while the United States has had a recent upsurge of measles. Uh, also, what's that virus? Uh, Enterovirus D68 and uh, a new polio-like uh, paralytic disease uh, which, again, is thought to be caused by viral infection. You know, what's really interesting, too, is years ago I was learning about inoculations and these the course of these uh, deadly uh, infections throughout human history, let's say polio. And when the polio vaccine was taught, I remember being shown in this course, which was being taught by one of the most renowned immunologists on the planet, 
and they showed a graph of when they introduced the vaccination and then a decline in polio. But practically at the same time on the graph, you could see there was an increase in another condition. And it was explained to me that because doctors at the time uh, were aware of the polio vaccine, when they saw a polio-like disease still happening, they said to themselves, and this is as simple-minded as it gets, folks, oh, this is not polio, this is some other condition. So uh, this encephalitic disease went on the rise as polio went down. Meanwhile, they were the same disease. All of this going to an argument of, well, if we didn't have all these vaccines, would these diseases really, would they really be going down? Or, or are they really going down? And, and were the, the declines of various diseases that have affected uh, human beings in the ways that they have, were they on the decline anyway? There are things known as, or is something known as a life cycle to these infections within a society, even planet-wide. In other words, things come into being, they do their damage, and then they go away. And these cycles exist, but sometimes human beings will say, oh, well, it just this thing just happened, so it's because of something we did or didn't do. You know, maybe one day we'll do a show on the... Uh, the evidence against and for uh, vaccinations and inoculations for these various diseases. But suffice it to say now that, at least in my daily life, as I view people in my practice, uh, people are very sick when they come to see me. And it takes some serious improvement in health strategies uh, to turn the course around. We also know that in the not very distant future, that infectious disease is fast becoming the number one killer of human beings. And that is beyond heart disease and beyond cancers. This is how I, this is how I think of it. You know, the fact that these viral infections like the enterovirus D68, measles, the new, you know, polio-like paralytic disease, the fact that these viral infection health crises exists in these modern times is evidence to me of the failure of the way in which we are and current systems are approaching uh, these problems. So I'm proposing that we need a, a new model, a better model that is just more personalized and suited for the individual and thus international distribution and disease prevention and has a broad spectrum effectiveness without having adverse effects upon health. The, so this multifaceted model that I want to suggest that you take in your life and that society should take should have a couple of different uh, focuses. Number one, it should target the virus. It should target the virus. So we need nutrition to target the virus. For example, zinc targets viruses. It's antiviral. It reduces replication. The dose, though, has to be right. You can't just take zinc, specifically a zinc lozenge, and think that's going to do anything for you other than help your sore throat. So the dose of nutrients, folks, needs to be based upon your metabolic rate to make it really work for the long term. Most people that I see, when I first see them at least, they don't really consider their long-term health. And that may seem very strange, even if I said that to them, because, uh, and of course I'm generalizing, but what I mean by that is, when one considers their generalized you know, long-term health, you 
make sure you dose yourself with the right doses based on your changing weight and your changing lean body mass because lean body mass determines how you burn calories and is a very, very good way of of dosing not just medications but nutritional supplements and macronutrients like protein, carbs, and fats to your body. If you're doing anything less than that, you know, figuring out, like like a bodybuilder would think of, um, you know, how much protein do I need? They would say, well, I need about 2 to 2.5 grams of protein per pound of body weight. And that might be just to maintain their musculature. But if they want to grow bigger, then they need more. And my point here is that whether we're talking about bodybuilders or cancer patients or autoimmune patients or people that are healthy but want to stay healthy, because it's a lot easier staying healthy than to, than to try to um, manage a virus once it manifests and takes a hold. You want to take the right dose. All of these different nutritional products require a different dose. Is that difficult to do? Well, it might be more difficult than maybe taking a handful of pills one day and thinking that, nah, you probably take enough. Well, I don't know. Because all you know throughout the years, as I've been looking at people's immune systems, and again, I would suggest that you listen to my show, Everything Immune, which you'll find on my blog at www.intmedny.com. You will see that people need what they need, and then they need the right doses. It's always the right nutrients for the right person at the right time taken in the right way. I certainly don't keep my nutrition for viral protection the same in the summer as I do in the winter time. Um, also, you might say, well, neither do I. I might pop some extra elderberry or NAC or echinacea or selenium or golden seal or astragalus. Popping a couple here and there or every other day or maybe every day, these do not add up to long-term health. If you want to really improve your morbidity and mortality, meaning reduce your morbidity and mortality, you want to stick with what the science says is the right dose for the right metabolic rate. So number one, as I said, we need to target viruses. So zinc does do that. So I do a zinc taste test on my patients, which has some reliability for figuring out if someone's deficient in zinc in the first place, because the blood tests, folks, for zinc, they're not accurate. The serum and the plasma blood tests, remember, this is the blood detective show, right? We've got to talk about blood. Uh, sometimes is uh, just represents the last two to five or so days of intake of zinc. Now, if you checked your zinc levels in a white blood cell, that would last. That would tell you zinc averages in the body for several months. But just in that in that blood cell, uh, that may be different than a brain cell or a thyroid cell. You know, you have these companies out there making claims that, for example, there's one about mitogen lymphocyte response testing, and they're they're making the claim that their tests are the best to figure out your nutritional needs. That is a lie because if anything, that test will only, let, let me just give it the benefit of the doubt. The mitogen response test for lymphocytes might tell you the best nutrition that your lymphocytes need, um, uh, possibly, but not any other tissue. And although lymphocytes are antiviral cells and they're important cells and essential cells for the immune response, they don't exist in a vacuum. Another nutrient, by the way, that is antiviral, that blocks viral replication. And also, so we're talking about two things, folks. One, we talked about targeting the virus directly. So you can target viruses with zinc. You can target viruses with N-acetylcysteine, also called NAC. But 
both of these nutrients also block viral replication. My point to you is that some nutrients, they work differently against viruses to prevent and treat viruses. Some target the virus directly. Some nutrients block virus replication. And other nutrients support the immune function and support cellular and whole body health. So let me give you an analogy so I really know that you understand this. If someone has cancer, some of you have had cancer, and there are a couple of ways in which you balance nutrition for cancer. Regardless of the cancer, there's a couple of things going on always. You have cancer cells. By definition, there's cancer. So you need certain nutrients that target the death of existing cancer cells. But at the same time that there are these cancer cells that exist, there are new cancer cells forming and then other cancer cells that are moving throughout the body and metastasizing. So different nutrients might target those different effects. And many nu nutrients, folks, actually target multiple pathways at the same time, at least theoretically. Now, the reason I say theoretically is because many individuals that I see, one of the things that I have to correct with them is, even in the cases they're taking the right supplements for antiviral effects and immune effects, they're taking, as I said, the wrong dose. They may be taking them at the wrong time per day. But the big thing is really about the dose. The doses tend to be way too low. So let me talk about this targeting of the virus. So targeting the virus has been the focus of medical practice and public health efforts through, again, vaccinations and sanitation and medications that target specific viruses, as I said earlier. Now, several nutrients and botanicals are also very effective for directly targeting, directly targeting viral infections. And I'll give you some examples of, of those right here. So for example, um, mineral, the mineral selenium, selenium thionine has a wide margin of safety. Well, shouldn't be taken above 200 micrograms without professional supervision and works in a couple of ways against viruses. So it blocks the viral mutation and also blocks viral replication. So viral replication is the copying and copying and copying of the cells. And viral mutation is the changing nature of the virus. And it's my opinion that natural therapies help to reduce the mutation rate of viruses while also blocking viral replications. And lots of herbs, um, whether they are, let me name a couple, echinacea, uh, golden seal, astragalus, these are the classic ones, even black walnut, um, olive leaf, cat's claw. These types of, of herbs, uh, cordyceps, uh, there are a bunch of them coming to me, uh, panax ginseng, uh, ashwagandha, rhodiola and licorice, all of these have shown effectiveness against difficult to kill viruses such as HIV. And the botanical medicine and the common, common herb that I just mentioned, licorice or Glyceriza glabia, has demonstrated very strong antiviral uh, effectiveness in many studies, both um, you know, in the test tube and also human trials against 
all manner of pathogenic viruses, including hepatitis B or HBV, hepatitis C, uh, herpes simplex, uh, influenza, uh, human immunodeficiency virus, uh, HIV-1, uh, severe acute respiratory uh, sim- syndrome, which is SARS, and uh, coronavirus, uh, respiratory syncytial virus, uh, a borovirus, uh, vaccinia virus, uh, vesicular uh, stomatitis virus. And again, licorice has a lot of effects across the board. The thing that you need to know, though, about licorice is that it, you know, or any herb, that there may be what's known as an adverse symptoms benefit ratio. You know, is the importance of the herb, does it outweigh the possible adverse effects? So if you take too much uh, licorice, you could cause what's called a pseudo-aldosterone effect. So what that means is that your body will retain, retain sodium and also will become potassium uh, depleted. This can cause heart palpitations, um, swelling, and also licorice can lower testosterone. So that may not be a good thing for those of you who already have uh, libido issues or loss of lean body mass or putting on way too fast or cholesterol levels going up and diabetes is happening because those are commonly a sign of low testosterone. And But we know, though, on the other hand, that licorice and a lot of those herbs that I just mentioned uh, have direct virus binding ability. Think about that, folks. A virus is floating around. Your lymphocytes can't catch it. But the herb, because of its structure, can physically bind to the virus. And that would inhibit its replication, what's known as viral replication, which would therefore enhance immunity inhibit inflammation, it's just all good. And then when you combine these herbs together, things work even better. Another antiviral approach that I use is by giving my patients um, what are known as immunoglobin G. So colostrum, which most of you have heard of uh, from a bovine source, contains predominantly immunoglobin G. And immunoglobin G is part of the immune system. And this can be taken in capsules. I make it uh, in a capsule form. And then I have a patient on average take two capsules two to three times a day. And when, by the way, folks, it's viral season, you want to get ready before viral season, take things earlier. Like if you've already like just started taking things this season, you're already really late. But it's never too late. And uh, you want to take these uh, three times or a day, or even more if you have a, a weak immune system. You might say, well, why would I need to take any of these herbs or nutrients or immunoglobins? Why would I need to take these three times a day? Why can't I just take them in the morning? Why can't I just take them in the morning at night? The reason for that, everyone, is because these different nutritional products have what are known as half-lives. Half-lives are the time uh, that these nutrients, how long they stay in the blood until their levels drop to a point where they're useless. Also, I need to tell you something as well, that most of you are taking, if you represent the, the patient population that I've seen over the last 28 years, you are taking your nutrients at with the wrong combinations and not the right dose and not often enough. So you're not getting levels in the blood that could make any kind of a difference. 
Some of you are fooled by this because you'll take it and then maybe you'll just happen to feel better that day. And you attribute that uh, to the to the herbs you're taking or the nutrients you're taking, except it's almost not that unless you have been taking them at least three times a day. So your blood levels are high so that if you still have a little viral something going on and then you take a, an additional dose of something, you're already starting out super saturated, which could blast the virus. But if you're starting out low in your blood and then you take something, you couldn't possibly have made a difference. Does this make sense? This is so, so common, everyone. You know, on a related note, I had a patient with facial pain who um, I recommended some nutrients. He couldn't, he decided not to take most of what I told him to take. So I, um, he started taking what he would take. And then all of a sudden, in like two days later, his facial pain that was there for months went away. I was shocked. I also know it could not have been from what I gave him because there's just no way, even though I gave him the right doses, he didn't have them, uh, he wasn't taking them long enough. And then, on a related note, the same person, he ran out of things. I suggested that I make changes. He received them, and within about two days of receiving them and taking them, apparently, he says, no, no, these nutrients you gave me, they cause hypertension. And I said, uh, it, it could not have been those. I'm not at all denying that nutrition can have adverse effects, but the things that I gave him do not cause hypertension. And even if they could, just like licorice can cause hypertension, uh, he wasn't taking them long enough to do that, which taught me that this man has anxiety and probably migraines, but doesn't know it. His facial pain was likely from migraines because of how it was coming and going the way it was. And uh, stress triggers migraines and also raises blood pressure. So the whole picture to me seemed like that this was a guy that was unaware of how he really can control his pain in terms of his belief system when it could not have been the supplements he took. So what does all this mean? What this means is that is that when I make recommendations to my patients, I base them on their lean body mass. They always get nutrition to minimum times a day, but three to four times per day if they have low immune systems and at least three times a day if you want a serious antiviral and immune modulating effect, particularly in, you know this, uh, this winter because it's going to be really, really bad. You know, what's so um, disappointing to me, you know, having gone through medical school and, go, and have gone through chiropractic school and nutrition school and all these different education courses, that typically the, the most medical students, they read about one chapter about pathologies caused by extreme nutritional deficiencies, like really rare nutritional deficiency diseases. But they learn essentially nothing about therapeutic nutrition and how it can be applied to the prevention and to the treatment of disease. They just don't learn it. So when my patients say, Dr. Wald, why is it, how is it that my smart doctor who works uh, you know, in, in the ivory towers of blah, 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 and they'll tell me some you know, big shot New York City hospital or, or medical group, how they could possibly not know this? It's so, so simple. They don't. They don't know it. And like human beings who love to pretend they know everything, um, they get very defensive when someone questions them. So go ahead and see what happens when you question your physician. And if you do receive quite the attitude, um, you know, either leave that physician or you, if you like that physician fundamentally, you just think that he or she could be more open-minded, then you share, you know, with them as politely as you can that you'd like their, their educated opinion. 
but that's once you provide them with some science about things. So, um, and I've done other shows on the problems with this, uh, the medical education and the closed-mindedness that's there, but it also exists in the natural healthcare field. I mean, I teach all over the country on all kinds of topics. Right now, I'm teaching topics that range from uh, neuroplasticity, all about using nutrition for the brain and nervous system, for all kinds of anything nervous system, to another topic on nutritional endocrinology, how nutrition, diet, and lifestyle uh, affect the hormonal system, and also an entire series on autoimmune disease, and another one on thyroid. And when I teach these individuals, some of them are also not practicing on the level that I would prefer. Once again, they throw a bunch of, you know, cliche nutrients that might be antiviral, but they don't discuss proper dosing, timing, and lab testing. You know, lab testing can really make the difference uh, in terms of how and how much and how effective your nutritional strategies are. And if you don't manage this on your own, folks, given what I said about the typical medical student reads about a chapter uh, about nutritional deficiencies and and learns nothing about therapeutic nutrition in schools, you have to be your own blood detective. You just must. You just must do that. But I would also ask a favor of you. If you're seeing a naturally oriented provider, and but you still maintain a relationship with your medical physician, which is fine. If something doesn't work in the natural field, realize that it's it may not have been applied to you correctly. So without throwing out the baby with the bathwater, the first thing that I like to do is look over someone's nutrient list, look over a seven-day food log, look over their sleep, which affects immunity, uh, their exercise or lack of exercise, and the rest of their health history, and try to piece together the puzzle of what nutrition they need for their overall health. So if you're going to take herbs for immunity, but you're protein deficient, uh, you're not going to get much, if any, of an effect uh, in terms of immune boosting. If you are deficient in healthy fats, that also will very, very um, significantly impair your ability to deal with, uh, with viruses and other types of infections. So let's digress back to uh, viral replication. So replication is copying, and we want to block viral replication. So inhibition of viral replication is the goal of many antiviral drugs and several antiviral nutrients. Because viruses are unable to self-replicate, they have to rely on the human or what they call host genetic and uh, synthetic machinery for the replication. So nutrients that modulate genetic expression can have therapeutic value when we're trying to reduce viral replication. So I know these words are getting a little complicated. Let me break this down for you. So generally, viruses tend to adversely affect the genes in the body what are called the methylation genes. Remember methylation? What's called DNA methylation. And the viruses may cause the genes to be silenced. And also viruses tend to block another chemical in the body called a transcription factor. It's called NF-kappa-B, which sets off an inflammatory cascade. So there are a few nutrients 
that promote methylation, which is what you want, and have been proven very effective against viral infections. One of them is folic acid. But it cannot just be any folic acid. It needs to be the active or methylated form of folic acid, known as L5-methyl tetrahydrofolate. Okay, L5-methyl tetrahydrofolate. And you want to take that with methylated B12. And one other thing, activated or phosphorylated B6. So you want phosphorylated B6, you want L5-methyl tetrahydrofolate, the methylated form of folic acid, and you want the methylated form of B12. If you have enough of these substances in your body, then your body cells can have a chance at withstanding the onslaught of viruses that tend to shut down methylation, which will cause viral replication. So if you increase methylation, you can inhibit viral replication. They've even shown that folic acid can inhibit Ebola virus, viral replication. So that's super important, this whole methylation process. How much should you take? Well, one to 4,000 units or micrograms of methylated B12, about the same um, 500 to 1,000 micrograms of methylated folic acid, and probably about 50 to 150 milligrams of the phosphorylated B6. Very, very important. Also, betaine uh, helps methylation in the body. And if you are uh, 50 years and older, you probably do not produce enough methylation, uh, or I should say betaine, in your stomach. And then without the betaine, you'll have a body that is more susceptible to becoming hypomethylated from a virus. Also, what's really important to know is that betaine, uh, along with something called S-adenosylmethionine, which is an amino acid, inhibits the NF-kappa B pathway, which reduces the inflammatory, or one of the inflammatory components of uh, viruses. So the S-adenosylmethionine and the uh, betaine have antiviral effectiveness. It's, and it's well proven, by the way, very, very well proven. And if you also add NAC and lipoic acid, you get a, a much, much more profound antiviral effect. And NAC, as many of you know from my other shows, is one of my favorite nutrients because N-acetylcysteine is an antiviral, it's an antifungal, it's an antiparasitic. It is a chelator of metals, which means it removes them from the body. And metals, by the way, can reduce immunity, making a person susceptible to viruses. So... If you want to protect yourself against viruses, but you have a history or you suspect that you may have some metal issue, then the nutrition you need, in part, must be focused on removing the metals and identifying them, not just taking licorice because you heard it was antiviral. So folks, the way in which you more, most effectively manage your immune system against viruses and to treat viruses is to identify and treat naturally any issues that you have that may have increased your susceptibility in the first place of infections. So if you have an increased risk of viral infections because you, let's say, have multiple sclerosis or Sjogren's disease, 
or Hashimoto's thyroiditis or, or um, Graves' disease, then you have to give yourself the nutrition for those things that you need so that your immune system is stronger, which includes the antiviral portion of your immune system. Okay? Also, over-exercising can reduce the immune system. I just thought I'd throw that out there. Just like under-exercising will not allow maximization of the immune system. But if you're exercising and you don't increase your nutrition to compensate for the stress of your exercise, you actually increase your risk of upper respiratory tract infections. As a marathon runner, I'm well aware of this. And most runners that are serious runners know that running increases one's risk of upper respiratory tract infections. But that's if you, you go about it in a usual way. I take my nutrients, I manage my diet, I take my body composition, I look at my labs, and then I make adjustments there, okay? And I don't wanna forget, okay, the dose of NAC would be about 500 to 2,000 milligrams per day. And if you have heavy metals, then it's more. Um, and then if you have, let's say, a history of mucus, then it would be more N-acetylcysteine. The doses on the bottles are just basic. They're not based on anything other than the whims of the manufacturers. Sometimes with really good manufacturers, um, they will put an amount in the bottle that is some reasonable dose, let's say based on a study of something uh, or many studies, but it may or may not be based on the studies of what you need it for, like how much NAC should a person use to remove metals, which might be very different than how much NAC should a person use to increase their glutathione levels, or how much the, uh, or the dose of NAC should someone use to reduce a bacterial infection. Well, it depends on the infection, it depends on the heavy metals involved, where the heavy metals are, what organ you want to um, eliminate them from? Is it the renal system? Is it the liver system? The nutrition will simply change. Yes, it's a little complicated, but the field of nutrition was never really meant to be ideally practiced without some kind of supervision, particularly if you have anything chronic. Um, the potential for nutrition to improve lifespan, quality of life, possibly length of life, uh, delay the onset of disease, um, and to manage uh, a reduction of, again, all-cause morbidity mortality, like cancer and autoimmune uh, and arthritic conditions and other quality of life issues, if one has a little bit of knowledge, you can take yourself to a whole other stratosphere in terms of health and nutrition, potentially. Most people are not tapping into this. Um, they are doing quite a good job of figuring some basic things out on their own, relying mostly on the internet. And you know, my opinion about the internet is changing for the worse because I used to say, well, I'd rather have my patients search on the internet than not. But when I search things on the internet and I am looking for issues with the content that I'm searching, uh, that I'm looking at, I am finding very little correct information, or there'll be some correct information with all sorts of wrong inf information. So I get individuals, like I had a very intelligent man in here a few weeks ago, and he wondered why he got a heart attack when he was been a vegan, uh, he's, or a vegetarian, I believe, and he's taken all these supplements and he's listened to smart people on the radio, and he just couldn't get it. And 
he kept saying to me, well, how could it happen? I, I ate this way and how could it happen? I took these nutrients. And I said to him, number one, um, you don't really know if you needed those nutrients. Those are just things you heard. And I said, and as far as the nutrients and your diet, maybe you did them perfectly. And if you hadn't, you might be dead now. Or if you hadn't done what you had done, um, you might have had to live with all kinds of um, problems from, uh, you know, that a person can experience from having a heart attack, but he made it through without that. So maybe he would be worse if he didn't take what he was taking. Maybe he could have been a lot better or avoided the heart attack entirely. But he, his confusion was that he really just assumed that everything he knew was right. Uh, a vegan diet, as much as I love vegan diets and I am a vegan, that's not going to prevent every disease. Some diseases you can't prevent with ideal nutrition at all. Some things just won't be affected by them. Other things might be affected by them. Certain individuals might not need a vegan diet. They might need a ketogenic diet, or they may need a ketogenic diet that's combined with a gluten-free diet. Uh, P.S. The paleo diet is ridiculous, so nothing much to say about that here. It's, it's insulting in terms of what is being claimed to be a diet that our paleolithic ancestors ate. These kinds of this this kind of information out there and, and, and people just jumping into it because, well, they, they think, yeah, I should eat just like early hominids did, early early, early men and women uh, as they were developing. Why would you do that? Uh, maybe, you know, it, they ate that way and they, and they died at age you know, 30. Uh, my point is that there is no paleo diet, there, just like there's no ideal diet for each person. Um, and what I mean by that, not being an ideal diet or a paleo diet is, you know, some of our paleo ancestors lived closer to the oceans. And when they lived at the shore and they ate more fish, they had higher diets in omega-3s. Their brains got a lot larger. They tended to survive better, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe those that lived far more inland, they had a totally different um, way of developing. So when you think of this entire planet and early hominids and what they may or may not have eaten uh, in some very inconsistent ways, and then there were they, they cross uh, mated, etc. There is no paleo way of eating. Just like a vegan diet is not best for everyone and a vegetarian diet is not best for everyone. And some people are better off with meat diets possibly. It depends on what your needs are. If you're finding yourself resisting me in this conversation, in terms of, well, there's got to be a best, better way of eating, I would say to you that you are also might have been um, a little brainwashed in the sense of f learning so much about a particular healthy diet, how it has to be healthy, and how that applies to everyone. You are an individual. I am an individual. What you need and what I need could be very, very varying. As you know, that, that's our holistic common sense. That's why it's important to take a person, see what they're doing, get clear on their health goals, look at some labs, discuss some questionnaires, get really clear on goals and treatments, and then trial and error and see what changes more of the chemistry and uh, affects how the person is, is doing. Do they feel better? Do they not? To figure out what each person needs. It's taken me a little while to figure out exactly what I need with my history of multiple sclerosis and my history of something called mycosis uh, fungoides, which is a, a skin lymphoma of all things, uh, to figure out what I needed. And that goes uh, to the same in terms of supplementation. So 
when we want to support the immune system, you know, the, the performance and the regulation of the immune system is heavily dependent on optimal nutrition status. Without proper nutrition, the immune, the immune system is uh, slanted simultaneously toward underactivity, which is deficiency-induced immunosuppression, right? That's underactivity. I'm going to repeat that. Deficiency-induced immunosuppression and hyperactivity, which manifests as inflammation and autoimmunity. So what we're saying here, and again, think of a seesaw in your mind. When one side goes up, the other side goes down. We will have a low immune system, let's say, on the low end, and the other end has to be a high immune system. So our two major immune systems, the cell-mediated immune system and the humoral immune system, they do the opposite on that seesaw. So when a person says, well, I'm more susceptible to viruses right now, that means there probably means that your cell-mediated immune system, that, that cells that mediate the immune response are low, and then the autoimmune system on the other end is high. And that's called a polarized immune system. So when you take the right nutrition, when you take uh, cordyceps sinensis, when you take panax ginseng, when you take erythrococcus and ashwagandha and rhodiola and licorice root, in the morning, at no less than 100 milligrams of each of those herbs, but maybe even as high as 800 milligrams of each of those herbs, that could have a potentially strong effect upon cell-mediated immune system. But only once you've gotten the ideal proteins per pound of body weight, the ideal healthy fats per pound of body weight, and the same thing for carbohydrates. Almost everyone needs immunoglobins, particularly if you have a hyperactive immune system. Now you might say, but if I'm having cold symptoms, how is that hyperactive immune system? How can it be super functioning? You can have a hyperactive immune system that's under functioning. So in other words, you might have someone in your house who's hyperactive cleaning a bunch of rooms, but if they're all ADD about it, they're not doing a good job. So you can have a hyperactive immune system that's not working well. So people with autoimmune diseases, they have hyperactive uh, autoimmune systems. So it's called humoral immunity. So they'll have more susceptibility to infections, even though they have a high immune system function because it's abnormally high, okay? And then also we mentioned zinc. How much zinc? I don't know. Uh, zinc has a very short range of toxicity. So probably, I would say 20 milligrams all the way up to about 75 milligrams depending on the person. And then of course, there's the use of probiotics. Probiotics can affect both hyperimmunity and hypoimmunity. See, when I sit with a person and I have them fill out my questionnaires and I'm speaking with them and I'm trying to figure out what is the balance or imbalance between their immune systems so I could figure out the right supplementations, not just based on that though. How well do they absorb these things? I might order absorption tests. And uh, what do they weigh? What is their body composition of muscle, water, and fat? Once you just do those things, you're, you're definitely in the ballpark of the right doses. So, whether it's viruses or even bacterial or fungal infections, we want probiotics, we want the lactobacillus, and we want the bifidobacteria, and we also want the Saccharomyces boulardii. Saccharomyces boulardii is mostly known as an anti-fungal herb, but really it's an immune modulator. 
when you put probiotics in the small intestine, you modify the immune response because 70% of our immune system is in the small intestine in what's called the Peyer's patches, which are in the walls, patches of intestinal clusters of cells. And by establishing healthy gut ecology, you can affect that immune system. So pretty much everyone needs probiotics. Pretty much everyone needs zinc. Pretty much everyone needs those herbs I mentioned, uh, the cordyceps, the panax, the erythrococcus, ashwagandha, the rhodiola. Almost everyone should needs, in my opinion, the immunoglobin G. We all need uh, omega-3 fatty acids unless uh, we're on blood thinners and that's the problem. And then some other, uh, you know, herbs to consider for immune modulation. The word immune modulation means if the immune system is too high, these herbs tend to bring it down. If the immune system is too low, these herbs tend to bring it up if the doses are correct in the right person. So we're talking about uh, galactoarabinins, also known as arabinogalactins. And these are really important immune modulators. The average individual needs probably about 400 to 500 milligrams per day easily. And then there's dimethyl, Glycine, another immune modulator, as is olive leaf and beta-glucan, and one of my favorites, maitake, what's called a PD fraction. If you combine the arabinogalactins, the dimethylglycine, the olive leaf, the beta-glucan, and the maitake, I mean, this is a really good immune modulator. And again, I want to point those terms out to you. Modulation means if you have too much of a good thing, it brings it down. If it's too low, it brings it up. The other term for that in herbology is, do you know? Adaptogenic. Herbs being adaptogenic. Now, if you take the wrong dose of herbs, you will not have adaptogenic effects. If you take too much of the herb, you might stimulate the immune system. If you take too too little of the herb, you might do the exact opposite with the immune system. So it's important to get it right. And I suppose the, the last thing that I should mention, well, maybe, maybe two things. I, I'm not obviously mentioning every single thing that's possibly antiviral and immune modulating, but I am mentioning the things that are the most important and the most real, in my opinion, based on studies and 28 years of experience. Um, vitamin D. Vitamin D is antiviral and immune modulating. It should not be overlooked. And I'll tell you, if another day goes by when physicians, some physicians are just recommending the wrong dose, given the importance of this nutrient, I, I, you know, it makes me want to jump out of a window, but I won't. Um, for example, last night I was having a conversation with a woman who said, yeah, Dr. Wald, um, I got your 50,000 units of vitamin D. My doctor said I shouldn't take more than 2,000 a day. I said, well, wasn't your, your result, as I recall, was less than 30. And she said, yes. I said, well, your doctor's wrong. So have your doctor call me. But in the meantime, um, you need to take 50,000 units, and she was quite overweight. Um, and I gave her 50,000 units once a week, which you do for eight weeks, and then you retest. That, then you get overall reduction of morbidity and mortality due to idealizing vitamin D. But um, that lower dose would have never fixed anything. So, so important, and it was neglected. And she also has a history of thyroid cancer, uh, lymphoma, and diabetes. Uh, so if this, this woman didn't have vitamin D written all over her, I don't know uh, who would. And then the last important nutrient, of course, is vitamin C. So I'm a fan of uh, vitamin C that is buffered. So a certain amount of calcium and magnesium and potassium are used to and mixed with the 
ascorbic acid to make it buffered, which means if you diluted the vitamin C in a glass of water and you put a pH stick in it, it would be on the alkaline part because most viruses and infections produce inflammation and all of these uh, various uh, disturbances of, of metabolism and, and, uh, and the chemistry of the body such that everything's acid. So as long as you don't have any contraindications to taking powdered vitamin C, I start people with a level teaspoon per day in two to three ounces of water or juice. If after a day they have loose stool, I have them cut back by a third of a teaspoon. But if they don't have a loose stool by the second day, I have them increase by a third of the teaspoon the next day and the next day. And then they go up until they get a little bit of loose stool and then they come down to the point where they don't. And that means they're perfectly hydrated. As important as vitamin C is, if you're underdosed with it, then you're underdosed. So that's why you need to take the right amount. Not just, oh, I take vitamin D, Dr. Wald, is what my patients will say. They'll say, well, how is it that my labs show I'm deficient in vitamin C? I take so much. I say, because too much is relative. I say, if you're burning 10 grams a day and you're taking nine grams a day, you're deficient by a thousand milligrams a day. And if you've got cancer, this, that, or the other thing going on, then your deficiencies are even greater. Well, I do wish all of you the best in this uh, winter season. Uh, I know I'll be seeing some of you figuring out what your needs are. If you want to work with me, give me a call at 914-552-1442. I also do distance consultations uh, in other states, even other countries. And uh, you can come um, visit my website. Would be would be great at intmedny.com. That's intmedny.com. And you can email me at info at blooddetective.com. And once again, my phone number is 914-552-1442. I wish you all the best. Speak to you soon. This has been Dr. Michael Walden. You're listening to Ask the Blood Detective. Come out, Virginia. Don't let it wait. You Catholic girls start much too late.